Hello, listeners, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast created specifically for Military Defense Council. This podcast provides the thoughts and suggestions of the host on military justice and trial advocacy, but it is not an official offering from the United States Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Defense Council should, of course, always conduct their own research and make their own determination on how best to represent their client in a particular case. I am Daryl Johnson, and it is five o'clock here in the National Capital Region, which means it's time to have a drink, relax, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's episode, we are going to discuss United States v. Bench, a recent case from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, and then we're going to discuss impeachment using specific instances of prior conduct under Military Rule of Evidence 608B. So let's get started with United States v. Bench. The specifications in that case alleged that the appellant had committed offenses on or in the presence of his children including his nine-year-old autistic son, who was referred to in the opinion as E.C. At the trial, the government requested that E.C. testify remotely by video teleconferencing, quote, to protect E.C.'s welfare because testimony in a courtroom setting, in light of him being autistic, will be particularly distressing, confusing, and potentially embarrassing, end of quote. Before I dig into United States v. Bench, I want to briefly discuss Military Rule of Evidence 611-D which mandates that a military judge must allow for remote testimony of a child where the alleged offense includes abuse of a child, and the military judge finds, first, that the remote testimony is necessary to protect the welfare of the child witness, second, that the child witness would be traumatized by the presence of the accused, and third, that the emotional distress suffered by the child witness is more than de minimis. Those three required findings are taken almost verbatim from the 1990 Supreme Court case of Maryland v. Craig, 497 U.S. 836. However, MRE 611D omits what I think is an extremely important aspect of the Maryland v. Craig decision, which is that the emotional distress suffered by the child will impact the child's ability to communicate. In other words, the focus is not solely on protecting the child because that legitimate state interest must be balanced against the accused's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. Therefore, the defense should argue that irrespective of MRE 611, remote testimony is only allowed if the government can demonstrate that the emotional distress suffered by the child will be so severe that the child will be unable to testify in the presence of the accused. In Bench, The government's assertion that testifying would be potentially embarrassing seems to fall far short of the high standard set out in Maryland v. Craig. This is especially true when you consider that Maryland v. Craig was decided before Crawford v. Washington, which of course clarified that confrontation means live, in-person confrontation, and Crawford was written by Justice Scalia, who dissented in Maryland v. Craig, arguing that the court had conspicuously abandoned a categorical guarantee of the Constitution. Somewhat surprisingly, MRE 611 is not once mentioned in the bench decision. This is likely because the defense did not object and agreed to EC testifying remotely via VTC. So the issue in bench did not pertain to whether the remote testimony was proper, but instead focused on an issue that came up during the remote testimony. As I understand it from the opinion, EC was taken to a room where they had set up a VTC with the courtroom, so that EC was displayed on a monitor in the courtroom, and the courtroom was displayed on a monitor to EC. However, apparently to make EC more comfortable, 
Trial counsel had placed a piece of paper on the screen so that E.C. could not see that the appellant was in the courtroom watching E.C. testify. E.C. noticed the paper, of course, and asked why it was there, whether there were people in the courtroom, whether the appellant was in the courtroom, and whether the appellant could hear E.C. The prosecutor, apparently picking up on E.C.'s apprehension, sought to put him at ease by lying to him and telling him that the appellant was not in the courtroom and would not be able to hear him. This apparently put him at ease, and they were able to continue with the testimony. The defense did not object to trial counsel misleading the witness and did not inform E.C. that the appellant was, in fact, present in the courtroom and listening to the testimony. The defense counsel did conduct a cross-examination. The issue on appeal focused on whether the remote testimony of E.C. violated the confrontation clause where E.C. did not know that the accused was present and aware of the testimony. After all, the Supreme Court has recognized that it is always more difficult to tell a lie to someone's face than it is to lie behind their back. Because the defense did not object at trial, the court first had to decide whether the appellant had waived the confrontation claim on appeal. Certainly, the appellant had waived the actual presence of the witness because he specifically acquiesced to E.C. testifying remotely. But the appellant had not agreed to lie to E.C. regarding who was present in the courtroom. He simply failed to object. The CAF noted that, quote, When an appellant fails to raise a confrontation clause objection at trial, this court considers the particular circumstances of the case to determine whether there was a waiver, but applies a presumption against finding a waiver of constitutional rights, end of quote. Here, it was clear that the appellant had simply failed to object rather than affirmatively waived the issue. The government, however, pointed out that Rule for Court Martial 905E stated that failure to raise this type of motion prior to the court martial adjourning results in waiver of the objection. I would note that the government was relying on the 2016 manual's version of RCM 905E which, as just stated, attempted to impose a waiver by operation of law even where there was no evidence that the failure to object was knowing or intentional. Thankfully, the CAF refused to apply the plain meaning of the rule, or the plain wording of the rule, likely because it was not willing to allow the government to extinguish a constitutional right by operation of law. Instead, it applied a plain error standard of review, which is the standard of review that applies when an appellant forfeits the issue at trial by failing to object. The plain error test requires the defense to demonstrate that 1. There was error, 2. That error was plain or obvious, and 3. That there was a material prejudice to the substantial right of the accused. In conducting its analysis, the CAF did not resolve whether or not it was error to lie to the child witness so that he thought the appellant was not present and would not hear his testimony. The CAF pointed out that there was no cases directly on point and noted that the appellant was able to confront the child witness. In Maryland v. Craig, the Supreme Court walked through some important attributes of confrontation, including the oath, the observation of the witness's demeanor, and the opportunity to cross-examine the witness. Here, there was no question that E.C. was under oath and that the defense was able to successfully cross-examine him. And the members were able to see E.C. on the monitor so they could see his demeanor. The appellant, however, argued that E.C.'s demeanor was artificial because E.C. was misled to believe that he was speaking behind the appellant's back rather than to his face, as the Constitution requires. The CAF noted that there were no other cases that had addressed this specific issue. In addition, the examination had the other requirements of confrontation besides face-to-face meeting, specifically an oath, cross-examination, and observation by the fact finder of the demeanor of the witness. 
Those things together led Kaft to conclude that the potential error was not plain or obvious. So the constitutionality of allowing a witness to testify under the mistaken belief that the accused is not present and will not hear the testimony is unresolved. Surprisingly, to me, the bench decision did not seem to touch on what should jump out to most people or any attorneys reviewing the prosecutor's statements, in that he was denying the presence of people, including the appellant, to the child witness, even though that denial was a lie. This did not even come up when considering whether the error was obvious. The military judge was sitting there in the courtroom with a clear shot to see that the accused was at the defense table, and yet he heard the trial counsel repeatedly tell the witness that the accused was not there and would not be able to hear him testify. Those lies were certainly obvious. Whether the lies triggered a confrontation issue may not have been obvious, for the reasons discussed by Kaff, but it seems odd to me that despite all the lawyers in the room, no one raised a concern about the lack of candor to the child witness. An objection based on prosecutorial misconduct might have been appropriate. Prosecutorial misconduct arises when the prosecution violates a legal norm or standard and, on appeal, courts will ask whether there was a material prejudice to the accused. Hopefully, we all know that lying to witnesses violates a legal norm. The types of standards that apply include legal ethics rules. And since this was an Air Force case, that cuts against Rule 4.1 of the Air Force Rules of Professional Conduct which prohibits making a false statement of material fact to a third person, which also tracks with Rule 4.1 of the American Bar Association's Model Rules of Professional Conduct. We can debate whether the presence of the accused in the courtroom is a material fact, but where, as in Bench, the presence or absence of the accused will likely impact how the witness testifies, it seems like a material fact. There are two takeaways from this case for trial practitioners. First, if you observe trial counsel lying to or misleading a witness, consider bringing it to the court's attention. You can, and likely should, object. In the bench case, there may have been a strategic reason why defense counsel did not object. One issue might have been that they did not want to appear as if they were harassing the witness or trying to make him feel uncomfortable. I would caution against allowing that kind of concern from stopping you from making an objection and perfecting the record. Better to request an Article 39A session and address it outside of the member's presence than to sit on your objection for fear of displeasing the members. The defense might also have thought that the objection would be overruled. Thinking your objection will lose is even less of a reason to not object, as a losing objection at least preserves the issue under a more favorable standard of review on appeal. Alternatively, you could also ask for an instruction. I doubt a trial judge would take an attorney to task in front of the fact finder, but perhaps the judge would instruct the panel to take into account the fact that the trial counsel lied to the witness when evaluating the credibility of the witness and how the witness's testimony should be considered in light of how it was elicited. The second takeaway is in regard to choices to consider when thinking about how to orient the witness. It is not uncommon for one of the parties or the military judge to orient witnesses who are testifying on the phone as to who is in the courtroom. Sometimes that even happens with witnesses who are live in the courtroom. In the context of a child witness testifying pursuant to MRE, 4, or excuse me, MRE 611D and RCM 914 capital A, the question would be, one, what do you want the witness to know? Two, what do you want the witness to see? Three, who do you want to be the person providing that information to the witness? And four, how do you want that information conveyed? For instance, as an instruction or via questioning. 
The bench case illustrates that your choices at trial may result in forfeiting legal issues so that they are evaluated on appeal for plain error, or even potentially waiving issues so that they are gone forever. Of course, you are litigating to win the trial as your top priority, with minimizing the sentence and preserving issues for appeal as your likely second-level and third-level priorities. So it is understandable that defense counsel will be concerned with how this information might affect the witness and, in turn, the client as the case plays out. As a practical matter, if you have a substantive child witness or they are a victim or a witness to the offense, you will likely have a forensic child psychologist on your team. You will want to incorporate them into the discussion on how live testimony versus remote testimony might impact the child, their testimony, and how they are perceived by the panel. This is definitely an area where one size does not fit all. Turning to our trial advocacy segment, we're going to talk about impeachment through Military Rule of Evidence 608B. That rule permits a party to impeach a witness's character for truthfulness by talking about specific instances of past conduct. Let's focus really quickly on the language of the rule itself. Quote, except for a criminal conviction under MRE 609, extrinsic evidence is not admissible to prove specific instances of a witness's conduct in order to attack or support the witness's character for truthfulness. The military judge may, on cross-examination, allow them to be inquired into if they are probative of the character for truthfulness or untruthfulness of 1. the witness, or 2. another witness whose character the witness being cross-examined has testified about. End of quote. You might recognize that second part of the exception, the one about another witness whose character the witness being cross-examined has testified about, as the use of the specific instances in the form of did you know or have you heard when attacking the foundation of a character opinion under MRE 405A. That is not our focus today. Today, we are focusing on that first exception for the witness who is testifying. You have the witness on the stand. They did a specific something that you believe makes them look untruthful. You want to, and may be permitted to, ask them about it on cross-examination. So we're on the same page. Here's an example of how this might look. You've got the supposed eyewitness uh, to your client's drug use on the witness stand. We'll call him Airman Informo. Recently, Airman Informo got administrative paperwork for giving a false official statement to his supervisor. The most bare-bones version of this question would simply be, Airman Informo, you recently lied to your supervisor. And when Airman Informo says, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, you're done. That's the most basic version of using a specific instance to attack the veracity of the testifying witness. Of course, this example is not at all effective, so we will beef it up here in a little bit. Before we do, though, let's highlight three important questions that are in play when we're talking about impeachment through specific acts like this. The three questions are, one, does this evidence reflect on the truthfulness of the witness? Two, do you want to go through this rule to use the evidence? Three, what can you do if the witness disagrees with you about this evidence? Let's take up each of those. So the first question, does this evidence reflect on the truthfulness or untruthfulness of the witness? That's a key question because it's a gatekeeper. You can't impeach using MRE 608B unless that evidence reflects on the character's witness, or excuse me, on the witness's character for truthfulness. The most obvious example is where the witness has previously been caught lying. They lied to the police. They got in trouble for lying. They fibbed or falsified some paperwork. They went full catch me if you can and pretended to be a doctor, a lawyer, and a Pan Am airline pilot. 
There's even an argument that larceny could fit within this box uh, based on a 1988 Court of Military Appeals decision, United States v. Pierce, 27MJ121. Though it's a little dated, that case is still good law, having been cited in March 2022 by the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals. But hold on. Just because you have evidence of untruthfulness, we still have our second question to deal with. Is this the rule you really want to use to get it in evidence? Like we talked about when we read through the rule itself, MRE 608B prohibits the use of extrinsic evidence. Broadly speaking, you are likely going to be stuck with whatever answer the witness gives you. So if you ask Airman Informo whether he lied and he says, no, I did not lie, then you are often stuck with that answer, if Rule 608B is your only avenue for admissibility. But what if the false official statement Airman Informo told was to blame the accused client for something on the job? Well, perhaps then this evidence is admissible under MRE 404B to show motive to frame the client, or under 608C to show bias or motive to fabricate. Those rules leave open the possibility to prove up the prior conduct with extrinsic evidence, such as a document or testimony from another witness, whereas MRE 608B does not. That brings us to the third question. What can you do if the witness disagrees with you about this evidence? Broadly speaking, one option available is to use the depth of your questions to continue testing the witness to see if they'll agree with you, which is endorsed by United States v. Owens, 21MJ117. You might also be able to refresh the recollection of the witness into agreeing with you. Or, if the witness opens the door when they disagree with you, you may be able to get into matters through extrinsic evidence. It depends on how the witness disagrees with you. Let's walk through that using our earlier example involving Airman Informo to illustrate these. We'll start by going back to our original question. Airman Informo, you recently lied to your supervisor. No, sir. Let's go back to the 16th of August. Around the 16th of August, you spoke with your supervisor about why you showed up late that day. Yes, sir. You were late that day, right? Yes, sir. Your supervisor is Staff Sergeant Smith. Yes, sir. You called Staff Sergeant Smith on the phone. Yes, sir. You called her, not the other way around. It was you calling her. Yes, sir. You told her that you had been in an accident. Yes, sir and that the accident was why you were late. Yes, sir. There was no accident, correct? Correct, sir. So telling Staff Sergeant Smith that you had an accident, that was a lie. That's one example of continuing on with the witness to try and convince the witness to agree with your impeachment. It is largely in line with using the concept of the depth of your examination to highlight the details and then, in turn, why your point is correct. Of course, we could similarly cover some of these things with increased depth on the front end, such as, Airman Infermo, I'd like to talk to you about the 16th of August. On that day, you were here at Scott Air Force Base. But you got here late. You talked to your supervisor about you being late. Your supervisor, Staff Sergeant Smith. You talked to her on the phone. You gave Staff Sergeant Smith a reason why you were late. You told Staff Sergeant Smith that you were late due to an accident. There was no accident. That was not true. You lied to Staff Sergeant Smith on the 16th of August. Depending on how it relates to your case, you may even be able to push it further, such as if the sequence of your questions can go into some sort of bias, such as, now let's step back for a moment, Airman Informo. When you showed up late, 
before anyone said anything, you knew you could get in trouble. And that's when you told the lie. And when you started working with OSI in this case, you were also at the risk of getting in trouble. And after you started working with OSI, that's when you identified Airman Snuffy in relation to this case. Let's note here that the Military Evidentiary Foundation Guide suggests that the foundation for this line of impeachment consists of establishing when and where. I agree those could be important. After all, a lie 20 years ago may not be particularly informative. But the crux, to me, is really hitting home that there was the prior act of untruthfulness, the thing the witness did. Also keep in mind, with either example that we just walked through, that you'll likely be unable to discuss the disposition for the act of untruthfulness. It doesn't matter, it's not relevant, if it was punished with an Article 15 or a letter of counseling. What matters is what the witness did. But any such paperwork could be a useful prop. The fact finder won't be able to see anything beyond you holding it up and effectively reciting from it. When the witness disagrees with you, however, the members can sense what you have in your hand and it will score points against the witness's credibility, even if it's not actually admitted. For the refreshing recollection piece, that avenue might be available to you if the witness answers any of, the, any of your questions with, I don't recall, or something along those lines. For example, you could ask Airman Infermo, Airman Infermo, you gave a false statement to your supervisor last week, correct? And then if Airman Infermo equivocates, says, I don't remember, you can transition as if you're trying to refresh the witness's recollection. And you do that again on cross in a leading manner, such as, well, Airman Infermo, you received a letter of reprimand for that false statement. If I was to show you that letter of reprimand, it would refresh your recollection, wouldn't it? At that point, the witness will either say, yes, that will help, and then they'll testify truthfully that they made the false statement the previous week, or they'll continue to deny and say, no, that wouldn't help me refresh my recollection, but really, the panel's picked up on what they're doing, and you scored the points you need to score. Alternatively, you could delve into the facts of the false statement to try and meet it out piece by piece to get the witness to essentially admit to the fact that they made a false statement. For example... Airman Informo, I'd like to talk about the 16th of August. On that day, you were here at Scott Air Force Base. But you got here late. Answers I don't recall. That was last week, Airman Informo, correct? And you don't recall that? You told your supervisor an untrue reason why you were late. Again, I don't recall. Again, we're talking about last week, correct? And you don't recall that? You got in trouble for lying to your supervisor. I don't recall. Like we've been talking about, we are discussing last week. Have you had any sort of injury or issues that you are aware of that might affect your ability to remember these things? Lastly, let's talk about what happens if the testimony from the witness is a blanket denial. As the Court of Military Appeals stated in United States v. Trimper, 28MJ460, if a witness makes a broad collateral assertion on direct examination that he has never engaged in a certain type of con misconduct, or if he volunteers such broad information in responding to an appropriately narrow cross-examination question, he may be impeached by extrinsic evidence of the misconduct. For example, if you ask Airman Informal, you recently lied to your supervisor, and Airman Informal responds with, I have never told a lie, or I have never been in trouble or I've never done anything like that. 
Those kinds of statements jump out at you because of the use of the word never. Words like never and always are often a gift for impeachment. Under these circumstances, extrinsic evidence is likely admissible so that you can impeach the witness by contradiction. To correct the impression left by the witness, you may be able to get in extrinsic evidence of all previous known lies, instances of the witness getting in trouble, or similar misconduct, so long as you can lay the proper foundation for the evidence. This could include any admonishment or adverse paperwork received for the specific false statement that you had asked about on cross-examination. And that wraps up our episode. So hopefully give you something to think about if you have a case dealing with a child witness testifying remotely, or the more common instance of impeaching with a specific instance of conduct under 608B. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know Tell them it won't be long And they'll be happy to know that you saw me go I was